Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Narjos Flores. And the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Today, we'll be discussing a new approval in immunotherapy. We're going to be breaking down the information about the trial, deciding if it where is the space for this new approval for patients with no target mutations, we are going to be discussing the Poseidon trial that led to the recent, recent FDA approval. On November 10 of 2022, meaning a few days ago, the FDA approved tremolumumab in combination with Dubarlumab and platinum-based chemotherapy in patients with metastatic no small cell lung cancer that do not have EGFR or ALK genomic alterations. To break down this trial, I'm very happy to have a special guest, Dr. Tejas Patil. He is an assistant professor of medicine and a thoracic medical oncologist at the University of Colorado. His clinical and research interests include a focus on precision oncology in the management of patients with lung cancer. He is particularly interested in novel biomarker development the management of patients with oncogene driver mutations, the development of new therapies, and understanding mechanisms of acquired resistance. When I was looking into Dr. Patel's profile, I found something that I really like that he says is that one doesn't feed all. And that is something that um, I love that he said and something that I live for. Just as a quick comment, uh, Dr. Patil and I met in a train on the way out of work conference in Toronto in 2018. At that time, we were both fellows. Welcome, Dr. Patil, to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to a very, very lively conversation. So as I mentioned, we know each other, so we're going to be referring to each other by first name. Thank you again for joining us. Let's start by discussing the current treatment of patients with metastatic lung cancer without a target mutation. What is your first choice for patients with a PDO one less than 50%? This is a really great question, and I think there's going to be a diversity of opinions among medical oncologists. For patients with PDO one scores less than or equal to 50%, I typically use the Keynote 189 regimen of carboplatin, pemetrexid, and pembrolizumab for my advanced non-squamous, non-small cell patients, and Keynote 407, which includes carboplatin, paclitaxel, and pembrolizumab for my advanced squamous, non-small cell lung cancer patients. Thank you. Uh, when we're, and this is important that you mentioned about the histologic subtype, right? <laughs> um, we were talking, you know, we're talking about squamous and adenocarcinoma in this case. Um, as we continue to talk about treatments, we're, you know, talking about this first to understand what is the place for this new drug approval. 
For patients with a PDO one higher than 50%, we have options of chemo plus IO or immunotherapy alone. In ASCO 2022, there was an FDA analysis that showed that the compiled data of patients with a PDO one higher than 50% that receive immunotherapy, monotherapy versus the triple therapy. They saw similar overall survival and a larger benefit in patients older than 75 years old that have the immunotherapy monotherapy. I must confess that just that sometimes I'm very nervous with some of these patients, you know, going in immunotherapy monotherapy. For some of my patients that have a lot of symptoms, that have large disease burden, and I need a rapid response, I usually do chemo and immunotherapy, even if they have a high PDL one because we need that quick response. But there's some other patients, for example, younger patients that I know that we tolerate chemo, but it's still, you know, it's only immunotherapy. You and I were training when uh, immunotherapy was approved in the second line setting. So we learned, or we were trained, we were receiving training as we were learning for immunotherapy. What are your characteristics of your treatment patterns for these patients that have a PDO one higher than 50%, when do you use monotherapy only or when do you use chemo plus IL? NJ, that's an excellent point. And it really highlights the clinical nuances that need to be considered when we think about immunotherapy in the first line setting. You're correct to point out that when we were both in training, it was very common to think of immunotherapy, specifically nivolumab, in the second line setting. And I think the field has largely now moved to using chemo immunotherapy as a frontline option for all non-small cell lung cancer. When making the decision to choose between chemo immunotherapy versus immunotherapy alone, I typically take the following clinical characteristics into consideration. First, I ask myself whether this patient is a never smoker or has a light smoking history. There are multiple large retrospective and prospective series that have shown poor responses among patients with driver oncogenes who receive single agent immunotherapy. And what's interesting is there was a large meta-analysis of 23 randomized controlled clinical trials and seven real world studies published by Zhao et al. that was in Frontiers Oncology in 2021. And what's interesting in this study is that it showed that immunotherapy monotherapy was found to have a greater benefit in patients with a heavy smoking relative to those with lighter never smokers. So for the latter group, that is the lighter never smokers, I tend to use chemotherapy with immunotherapy, even when the pdl one scores are greater than 50%. Second, as you pointed out, I asked myself whether the patient has a high risk disease that we need to cite or reduce. Examples of this would include main stem bronchial obstruction, symptomatic chest wall invasion, or vascular obstruction. For these patients, I offer chemoimmunotherapy up front. Finally, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, I look for high-risk prognostic markers such as KEEP1 and SDK11, which have been associated with a negative response to immune checkpoint inhibitors. In these patients, I would favor a chemoimmunotherapy approach. I agree with you. I think more data is evolving, including data from my own institution about how these co-mutations or SDK11, KRAS, and KIP1 could produce a resistance to uh, these uh, immunotherapies. A little bit off script, 
I think something that also to take into account is comorbidities. I treat a lot of younger women. And so for the younger women that don't have target mutations or their cancer doesn't have a target mutation, I often encounter the issue that they have an autoimmune disease. Um, you know, besides having a rheumatologist and a speed dial in my phone, um, sometimes I take the risk of studying the immunotherapy because we know some of these patients may benefit, especially if it had that smoking history. They just had you been in that situation in which you have a patient that we clearly benefit from immunotherapy from the tumor point of view, but they have an autoimmune disease. Yeah, that gets into very nuanced territory. And I think these are always the very challenging cases that we all confront as medical oncologists. I recently saw a patient who had ulcerative colitis that flared up. And through the ulcerative colitis flare, we actually detected a very large non-small cell lung cancer. Now, this patient, despite doing everything possible, including receiving biologics for their ulcerative colitis, ultimately wound up needing a colectomy. And so now the question that we're faced with is, colon is out. And as far as we know from ulcerative colitis, that tends to be the pathological site of involvement. So what is the role for immunotherapy here in the absence of extra intestinal manifestations? I think these are the kind of really challenging cases that we just need multidisciplinary input and consultation with other specialties, such as in this specific case, GI and immunology. And I'm bringing that up because we're going to talk about Poseidon, right? There's double immunotherapy. And I think something that also affects is the type of autoimmune disease. You know, also colitis is one of the ones that are more like, I'm more scared of, but you know, some patients may have rheumatoid arthritis. So I think it depends on the disease and it's related to what we're going to talk about it because does the dual immunotherapy, you know, probably not a good option for these patients. So back to Poseidon, Poseidon is a randomized one-to-one-to-one multi-center international uh, open-label clinical trial of patients with metastatic no small cell who have not received prior therapy. So the patients or the participants were divided in three different arms. Arm number one was tremilumumab, which is a CTA4 inhibitor, plus dubarlumab, PD-1, um, and platinum-based chemotherapy for four cycles, followed by DERVA and maintenance um, chemotherapy every four weeks. And patients that were treated with tremolumumab also received an additional dose or a fifth dose of tremi at week 16. I think when you have a paragraph to describe an arm, it makes it even more complicated. <laughs> It's true. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Arm two, everybody who's listened to us, try to imagine this. Arm two is DERVA plus platinum chemotherapy for four cycles, followed by DERVA maintenance plus chemotherapy maintenance. Arm number three is old school chemotherapy for six cycles, followed by maintenance chemotherapy. So to summarize this, TREMI, DERVA plus chemo, DERVA plus chemo, versus chemo alone. Tejas, what are your thoughts about this design of the study? And I would like to really hear about this fifth dose of TREMI and what are your thoughts around that? NJ, these are really good questions. Um, 
here's what I'm thinking. I first, I think the first thing to note about this study is that in some sense, we've been here before. The listeners of this podcast will recall that the data for the phase three mystic study of dervalumab and tramelumumab was presented in 2018. This was a negative study. And so I think in that context, it's helpful to remember the design of that study and then contextualize this study. In mystic, patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer without EGFR-ALK oncogenes were randomized one to one to one to receive dervalumab, dervalumab plus tremilumumab or chemotherapy. And the study failed to meet its primary endpoint. Specifically, there was no overall survival and PFS benefit. I should mention that this combination also failed in a subsequent Neptune study, which focused on patients with a high tumor mutation burden. So coming back to Poseidon, the one aspect I wanna emphasize is the chemotherapy arm. Unlike Keynote 189 or Keynote 407, which mandated a specific chemotherapy regimen, here, we really are using a diversity of platinum doublets. Here, they, they include carboplatin plus abraxane for all histologies. And then for squamous, they had carboplatin or cisplatin with gemcitabine. And uh, for non-squamous, they had carboplatin or cisplatin with pemetrexed. And in this group, pemetrexed maintenance were allowed for the patients who received this therapy. So NJ, going back to your point about tremilumumab, and whether an additional dose is needed, I'm really not sure what to make of that. Biologically, I'm not convinced that a CTLA-4 boost at a later time point necessarily adds anything, but I'm curious to see what your thoughts are on this as well. I think we have been trying very hard to get Tremi approved. I'm just being honest out there and I have friends that have worked in this trial. We have tried CTL for many times, including, you know, in Checkmate 227. And I don't know if it, besides for patients that don't have an adequate end organ function for chemo, I don't know how much Checkmate 227 change practice, right? With the addition right. of EP2 nivolumab. So now we have another CTL4. I don't know how much is going to change practice. What I do know uh, is that it will no lower the prices of these drugs. I was very naive at the beginning thinking, oh, you know, the more drugs that get approved, the better, uh, you know, there's more chances that this, the prices of these drugs will lower, but we didn't see that. So mm -hmm. I think it's an effort to get the drug approved. There may be a subgroup of patients for which this combination may be beneficial. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But I also worry that we may be doing a statistical gymnastics mm -hmm. after millions of dollars have been spent in this trial mm -hmm. to try to find that group that may benefit. Right. Especially in the context of prior negative studies. I think that's where I get a little bit worried about what exactly is CTLA-4 adding here. Yeah, and I think we have tried. It's not like this is, as you say, like previous studies. And I had a patient um, in the TREMI uh, trial that was um, consolidation after chemoradiation uh, that didn't do well. 
And I don't want that to influence influence my opinion, but I just don't know where more immunotherapies have a space when there's so many other unmet needs for our patients with lung cancer. Like what happens after immunotherapy? And to quote mm. my very famous abuelita or grandma, that soup is done. You need to move to the next dish, <laughs> right? Because 100%. Do we need another immunotherapy? But let's move forward and keep talking about results of the study. So the major endpoint for this study was progression-free survival and overall survival. All the information I'm going to be sharing is TREMI plus DERBA plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy, which is no longer the standard of care. So TREMI plus DERBA plus chemotherapy show a statistically significant improvement in overall survival compared to chemo alone with a hazard ratio of 0.77, a median overall survival of 14 months for the experimental arm, meaning the four drugs, and versus 11.7 for the control arm traditional chemo, no immunotherapy in arm three. Median progression free survival was 6.2 months for the experimental arm versus 4.8 months in the treatment arm. All of this was a statistical significance. Overall response rate was 39% for the experimental arm, 24% for the control arm. Median duration of response, 9.5 months, 9.5 months for the quadruple therapy and 5.1 months for the um, control arm. What are your thoughts about these results? We're talking about maybe a two-month benefit of overall survival when compared with chemo alone. And if we stretch it, month and a half of progression-free survival. Right. NJ, you're bringing up really good points here. I'll add a couple of thoughts. While it's exciting to add new tools to our oncologic toolkit, I'm not really sure how this combination will affect our clinical practice. With the specific exception of maybe offering another therapeutic option for patients with a PDL1 score of less than 1%. Couple of points I want to note about the efficacy data that you just shared. I'd like to mention that the median PFS of the chemotherapy arm was 4.8 months, which is a little bit lower than you would expect, but I think it potentially reflects the heterogeneity of chemotherapy doublets used in this protocol. Specifically, when you look at the subgroup analysis in the study, the gemcitabine doublets did much worse in the study when compared to other backbones, and I think that's an important takeaway. Another aspect, and this is in the supplementary data, is the percentage of non-squamous patients who received maintenance pemetrexid was not evenly distributed between the dervalumab, dervalumab, tramilumumab, and chemotherapy arms. And this was at 75, 80, and 64% respectively. So I wonder to what extent this played a role in some of the efficacy data that we're looking at. That's a very good point, you know, to dissect. We cannot forget, you know, to evaluate which patients get what treatment and also the different types of treatment patterns in international studies, we have seen that. Uh, Do you think these results will impact your current clinical practice? I'm not sure that these results will necessarily influence my current clinical practice. 
I always have concerns when newer immunotherapy trials compare efficacy against platinum doublet chemotherapy, which I would argue, and I think you've alluded to this, is no longer standard of care. And I specifically worry when combination immunotherapy trials do this. You will notice in this study that there was no direct comparison of dervalumab and tremilumab with dervalumab, or sorry, let me reframe that, dervalumab, tremilumab, and chemotherapy to dervalumab with chemotherapy. And so it really brings into question, what is CTLA-4 really doing here, especially given some negative trials in the past? And, and, and doesn't need to think about it because I know trials were designed before a lot of things, uh, but I really would like to see the comparison of Tremiderva versus Chemoderva, that we base the difference or the benefit on that instead of comparing ARM1 to ARM3, because mm-hmm. ARM3 is no longer the standard of care, right? Mm-hmm. It's like... I. I we keep comparing stuff to crisotinib and we keep having this conversation. So I would like to see better analysis of chemoimmunotherapy versus chemo double immunotherapy because we're comparing standard of care. Most of my patients that don't have a mutation get triple therapy. I don't know. That's probably the case in your practice as well, right, Tejas? Mostly. Correct, yeah. That's how I would treat most of these patients. And... Um, now let's move about, let's talk about adverse reactions because of course they happen in over 20% of patients. Some of the reactions were standard, nausea, fatigue, anorexia, decreased appetite, most like musculoskeletal pain, rash, and diarrhea. Around 10% of patients have grade three or four lab abnormalities, no new culprits neutropenia, anemia, um, but increase in lipase, um, hyponatremia was also doc- uh, documented in the safety. The authors during presentation say it's no new safety signals, but what that means, no new safety signals for tremi or the whole combination. Do you see anything in the safety profile of this trial that caught your eye, particularly to the addition of the CTL4 inhibitor? So one thing that was interesting was the treatment discontinuation rates between dervalumab and trenilumumab and dervalumab were equivalent, which I thought was interesting given the what I would have anticipated to be a higher rate of toxicity with the addition of a CTLA-4 inhibitor. It's interesting to point out all the hematological toxicities with this study. So you had mentioned neutropenia, anemia, and thrombocytopenia. And I think that reflects really the heterogeneity of chemotherapy options used. Given that abraxane and gemcitabine were allowed on this protocol, I think that probably accounts for some of those findings. But I was somewhat surprised by the risk of really severe autoimmune complications such as colitis and pneumonitis didn't seem to be very different between the two arms. And that's true. I think, you know, we're all a little bit PTSD for some of the complications we have with melanoma, with patients with melanoma. Mm-hmm. Um, that also caught my attention, but I think there's still a story, story to tell uh, when the drugs get to real world data. 
right? Because most mm-hmm. patients in clinical trial tend to be very fit, right? Zero to mm-hmm. one performance status. They're able to make it to all the appointments. And a lot of the very bad adverse events have been discovered in post-marketing research or post-approval research. So I think if this gets adopted in the clinic, it will be to know if it, they, we see an increase or immune-related adverse events reporting. We didn't see it with Checkmate 2 to 7, but I don't know how many people adopted the regimen. Right. I don't know how many people adopted Checkmate 2 to 7. And that specific immunotherapy combination really has a small role in my practice. It, it is something I will use, but it's a very niche combination and patients have to have very specific comorbidities in order for me to use that treatment. To be honest with you, Tejas, I have used Checkmate 227 um, and only a handful of occasions in two of those occasions was just the patients did not want chemo. It was just, they didn't want it. They didn't want chemo at all. Despite education and multiple meetings, they didn't want it. So it was a good option, but I didn't get a lo- lo- longer response. Uh, that's as, as, you know, any prolonged response in these patients. So as we continue to talk of where is the space for this new combination, the investigators in the presentation and further suggest that this combination may be helpful for patients that have resistant mechanisms to immunotherapy, like somatic mutations, SDK11, KIP1, WKRAS. What are your thoughts? Is that the space for this new combination? Well, I think that's the million-dollar question. And there's a lot of research trying to think of novel immunotherapy combinations to address these problematic somatic alterations such as SDK11 and KEEP1. I think the data is premature and the sample size is not large enough to draw conclusions. This is an evolving space and the exact role of adding a CTLA-4 inhibitor in this subset is largely unknown. And so my conclusion will be, we need more data to have more clarity on this position. Tejas, I agree with you 100%. I think we have learned a lot about these resistant commutations and we call these cold tumors, but the data comes from bench and then from some retrospective multi-institutional studies and a little bit of, you know, as we talk, statistical gymnastics, but we need to understand better this resistant mechanism uh, in order to know if it is an appropriate therapy. I think this part of Poseidon is something that is more idea generated and hypothesis generated to really focus in this very group of patients and conduct a study that we have enough sample size and that will be designed to evaluate that uh, in the future. So as we're closing down this episode about the approval of trimelumumab plus derva plus chemotherapy, Tejas, is anything else that you would like to add about this study and any potential future uh, trials that may come from the Poseidon data? Well, I think it's always important to have some positive view on on studies because I think they do, as you pointed out, offer an opportunity for hypothesis generation. 
I think this study did a really nice job of simulating real-world experience by including a diversity of chemotherapy doublets. This really does reflect real-world challenges that oncologists face. And by doing this, we learned some important data that I think can be useful in the clinic. Specifically, this study clarified some important limitations with using platinum gemcitabine regimens for squamous non-small cell lung cancer. I think this study also offers another opportunity to use a combination of PDL1 and CTLA4 therapy for patients with PDL1 scores less than 1%. Though I would caution listeners that the exact subsets of patients who do have PDL1 less than 1%, who do stand to benefit from the addition of a CTLA4 inhibitor is largely unknown. And as we move forward, I'm hopeful that the exact role of a CTLA-4 inhibitor in lung cancer can potentially be clarified. I agree with you. I think it's important to, you know, see this as further advancement, more options for our patients, uh, more learning. And I think also this large study has brought attention to these resistant mechanisms that I think were not widely known in the community they were, you know, known in some parts of academia, but also brings attention to the importance of NGS or next gene sequencing, because these are no target mutations. And the importance of doing this more comprehensive testing so we can get to know our patients more than just a PDA one, which is a heterogeneous dynamic marker. So I think bringing attention to resistant mechanisms, providing more options to our patients is what we're all here for, but also understanding that sample size are small, that further studies need to take place to understand the role of this combination immunotherapy for these patients with resistant mechanisms. And they may be a role somewhere for a patient that can get the dual immunotherapy and also helps, you know, remove some of the fear with CTL4 and toxicities. As we, you and I talk, the toxicities weren't significantly worse. So, you know, makes the thoracic oncologist feel more comfortable because I know our cutaneous or melanoma oncologists are more comfortable with CTL4. Right. And Jay, and I also want to just make sure that we emphasize that a lot of what we learn in the clinic can be taken to the bench. And I hope that this motivates smart translational research that can really focus on the subsets that you just outlined, because I do believe that there are subsets of patients with lung cancer who really don't derive the benefit that we would want from our current toolkits. And so translational research, mechanistic research, using biology to inform decision-making, I think is really the optimal direction and one I hope we move forward to. A hundred percent. There's so much to talk about. Something that's clear is that we need to do research after immunotherapy because doxytaxel and gensadavine are all drugs are still there, but what else can we offer our patients when immunotherapy is no longer working? So I would like to thank everyone for listening. And especially I would like to thank Dr. Patil for taking the time to join us today 
right before my birthday weekend starts, everyone. So he was <laughs> able to manage to change the meeting just to let me start my birthday weekend early. So thank you so much, Dr. Patel, for being here and for allowing me to uh, start my birthday weekend one hour earlier. Oh, anything for a happy birthday weekend. So it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I really appreciated our conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone that's listening. This is it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We hope that you will tune in the first and the third Tuesday of every month to give us a listen. You can engage with us on Twitter at ISLC or at our website, ISLC.org. Also, the good news, we are now in Spotify. We have joined Generation C, so you can Tune in with us in Spotify, SoundCloud, and any other platform that you may listen to your podcast. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.